Thank you. Uh, th th thanks for having me today. Um, what I'd like to do is, is try to uh, go through a PowerPoint presentation, slideshow basically of, uh, of investigations that, that I worked on and conducted. Um, throughout the, the room here, I've laid out some magazines about the FBI. Please feel free to browse through those if we take a break or if you get refreshments. Look at the pictures and some of the articles and give you an idea of what we do as special agents. And along the front row here, I've brought in um, newspaper clippings, photographs from actual uh, people I've put in jail from cases I've investigated. I brought my handcuffs in here, uh, trying to make, make a, a point that, you know, American citizens have nothing to worry about with the FBI because we as agents of the FBI do the best job that we can with our hands cuffed behind our backs with all the rules and regulations that we have. You just wouldn't believe how many there are. There's the United States Constitution, of course, which we respect and uphold. But then, Department of Justice, depending upon who's in there at the time, the, the Attorney General or whatever, they create more rules for you, and you have to abide by those, those rules. And all these rules that, that I'm going to go through just briefly, they, to me as an agent, they become obstacles because you're always asking, can I get out and do the job? Can I do the surveillance? Can I get buy money to make the buy of drugs that you want me to make? You want me to take down this gang? I need this help. But there's so much paper that we have to write. So you have to be a very good writer in the FBI. So on top of the, the Constitution, which is fine, Department of Justice guidelines at D.C., they set out all kinds of rules for you, and it's mandatory writing. And then what you have is the U.S. Attorney's Office, wherever you work, they'll have another set of rules for you. And then the division that you're in, the special agent in charge, he'll create more rules. And all of these rules all have to do with more paperwork. So you're generating so much paperwork, it's like, I just want to get out of the office and do the investigation. So that's why I kind of facetiously say we, we kind of do the job somewhat with, with our hands cuffed behind our back. But that being said, uh, we can still get the job done. And um, in, in case you don't know, there are 56 field divisions in the FBI. And then there are 400 what we call resident agencies. Those can be anywhere from a one-man, two-man, to a 22-man outpost. And they're scattered, scattered throughout the United States of America. That was Mr. Hoover's creation. And his idea was there will be no place in the United States of America that he cannot get an agent dispatched within an hour of an allegation or a need. And, and that holds true. Um, and my, myself included, um, had to respond to Wyoming out of Denver, Colorado, a nine-hour drive, going 90 miles an hour, getting, getting stopped by the, the highway patrol and uh, pulled over and, and not quite embarrassed, but so of course we show our creds and, and it's not like TV. We never show our badges as agents, we show our creds. These are my retired creds, okay? And this is a, a badge of, a, of the special agent of the FBI. This is a retired badge. When you retire, they take your creds from you, they drill holes in them, and they put them in a plaque, then they give it back to you. So you can't go out and continue to work as an FBI agent, even though you'd like to. But when I, when I pulled out my creds in, in Wyoming, the state, state patrolman looked at it and went, that's a real badge? <laughs> yes. That's the smallest badge I've ever seen. Yes. May I go now? <laughs> but, but that's just how it is. Uh, and very few people ever get to see this. If you want, you can just pass those around just so you get to see what a, a set of creds are like. Um, and undercover capacity, I've, I've worked undercover as, uh, in New York City uh, against the, the Department of Veteran Affairs, somebody ripping them off. My name there is Frankie DeMella. And out in uh, Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado, 
I'm known as Bill Peters, trying to bring down a, a gang of people that were stealing computers out of Lowry Air Force Base. The typical of FBI investigations, you get the allegation, and off you go. And you start to do, you start to do the investigation, and you find out, like, these people, they, they don't seem to be spending any time at Lowry Air Force Base. I'm, I'm undercover. I'm, I'm, I'm up there with them. I'm, I'm trying to buy stuff that they're stealing. They don't seem to be stealing anything. Everything is kind of falling apart. It's like, man, months-long investigation, and finally I get the call. And they want to sell me computers. And this is way back in the days when computers first existed, when none of us would have had a home computer. So the important thing is I had to make sure I asked for an IBM computer because we knew that those were the only types of computers that we could backtrack. And once we get the number on them, find out where it came from, how it was transported, and how it was finally stolen. So it turns out in the long run, uh, they weren't stealing from the Lowry Air Force Base. They were an organized gang stealing from residential homes in the Denver metropolitan area. And so sometimes that, that's the, the twists and turns that these cases will take. Um, somebody once described FBI agents, and, and I think they were correct when they described us. We're eight personalities. We're highly competitive. Um, we hate to lose. We refuse to lose. Um, and as one woman in New York City, in, in, not in a grand jury, but in a procedure that they have, it's called Queen for a Day. We call them subjects. We targets and all that, but we call them subjects in the FBI. The subject comes in, usually with her team of attorneys, four or five, on one side of the long table. We have our assistant U.S. attorney, two or three attorneys there on that side of the table. And, th and this is called queen for a day. She gets to make her plea of why she shouldn't be prosecuted, how the FBI agent is so terrible and all that sort of stuff. My job at, at, at a queen for a day is be quiet. The attorneys will talk back and forth. They'll let them talk. They handle it all. My, my job basically is done. So I have my head down, not looking up at the woman, because we've already had three run-ins. And uh, the run-ins occurred when I had to serve a federal grand jury subpoena on her for records for her employer. The first time, she got up and ran away from me. So I literally had to chase her through the office, hit her with the subpoena, and say, you've been served. We went through this three times. And, and then the last time, I had to chase it down Broadway in Manhattan. <laughs> Give her the, it's like, lady, this has nothing to do with you, but hey. But she's in there, and, and so she's testifying, giving her testimony. Everything seems to be going fine. I have my head down, just doodling. And all of a sudden, she jumps up. She's crying, and she screams, and he's not a nice man. I thought, yeah, she's right. We're not. So we're a personality, and we're not nice men. We're not, 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 not nice people. The other thing about the Bureau is... This is Title 18, United States Code. This is, uh, this is our Bible. Be before you conduct an investigation, you have to figure out, is it a federal crime? Is it a state or a local crime? Because if so, then we probably don't work those. And then what are the elements of the crime? And then what do I have to prove to bring this crime home, to bring the bad guys? And what am I allowed to do to try to do that in conducting an undercover operation or conducting wiretapping or phone tapping and things of that nature? Um, the power of the Bureau is, is just immense and incredible. But again, we don't do anything by ourselves. We have so many levels of permission we have to ask for. So that being said, let me get the PowerPoint uh, working, hopefully. And we'll go through a couple of cases. If anybody's got any questions, you can cut me off and you don't have to hesitate. I, I won't be upset. I have a question. Please. Did you, did, have you ever used disguises when you were going to serve repeatedly? Uh, <laughs> 
No, no, because it's, it's, it's more important to be able to say, she was served, she knew who I was. The, the creds there, you, I don't want to say you slam them in their face, but you slam the creds right up there so they see a big FBI, so there's no doubt that she cannot say, I was not served by the FBI, I was never served. It's like, oh no, you have to fully identify yourself, and she knows it was the FBI, because if, she, if they fail to produce the records, that's a separate federal crime, and that's an easier one for us um, to prosecute. Okay, let's see if I can do this. A any other questions or? There we go. My goodness, what's all that stuff? Oh, well, we'll drive on. So these are just gonna be investigations that, that I worked. Hopefully. And there we go. Okay, we did this. Um, my last, my last uh, division that I got into here was the Boston office of the FBI. I can't really remember what, what this case was about, but by that time, I'm a senior agent of the FBI. Somebody else's case, and, and that's what usually happens. You go into the office that day, you've got your own caseload, you figure you're going to be working, working on that, and then there's an arrest going down. They need help, they need volunteers. So it's an all hands, all hands on board, so you participate in the arrest. You drop whatever you're doing and put that aside. The other thing that you need to know is the typical FBI investigation takes four to five years to bring home. And again, the reason it takes that long to bring it home is there's that many requirements for you to follow um, federal procedures. But in this, this particular one, it was, it was pretty funny. It was a, a block in the North End. And I'm the senior agent, but it's not my case. So they're all going to go up the front stairs, uh, third story up. They're going to bang on the door. They're going to announce FBI. They're going to arrest this guy. And it's like, well, put the older agent out back. And I'm thinking to myself, come on. You know how this works. He goes out the window. He jumps out the back way. That's where he's going to be coming. As soon as you guys bang on that door and he says, FBI, open up. We have a warrant for your arrest. He'd be coming out. But I don't say anything because, hey, Whatever, I'm new to the division, but, I, but I'm not new to the bureau. So I go to the back, and, and it's, a, it's a, a city block long, and there's a, an, a fence that you can't scale or climb that covers the entire city blocks. This whole apartment complex, you might say, everybody's backyard and stairs empty out there. There's only one gate. So I go stand over by the gate, and I'm thinking, well, this is great. What am I going to do if he comes in, comes this way because the gate is locked? I can't get to him. Right? I can't let him get back and get to the agents if he comes down this way. Kind of serious thing. And um, so I'm hiding in the shadows. I can hear them running up the front stairs. I can hear all the bang, bang, bang on the door. I hear, and then I hear that sound, the window opening up. It's like, oh, yeah, here he comes. Oh. Boom, boom, and you can hear him coming down the stairs. Boom, 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 and I'm like, oh. So I'm hiding behind a pole, and um, as he comes running for the gate, I step out from, from out of the shadows, and I tell them, FBI, don't move. And, and, and TV, I don't know, sometimes it's kind of funny watching the Westerns because they always say, watch the bad guy's eyes. And yeah, I watch his eyes. He stops, he hesitates, and I can see he's going to run back. So it's like, well, I drive down on him, <laughs> slam the gun up there. But we are basically, uh, there's a gate in front of me. I'm from here to the wall. And, and I've got him stopped there. And then I've got to command him, come to me, come to me, come to me. So he's hesitating, he finally comes to me, he turns around, and then it's like, okay. As I'm not supposed to do, I have the cuffs in the back of my belt, but 
So I, I get it both hands through the fence. He's facing away from me, holding my weapon because I don't want him to see that, and then reach for my cuffs. And what do they do? It's normal, not like TV. They slide down your pant leg all the way to the ground. <laughs> so what's my first reaction? Don't you move. Don't turn around. You understand me? <laughs> it's like reaching down, holding on to him. I finally get him cuffed. So now he's, he's stuck in the fence this way, facing away from me. And, you know, and we're talking. There's nothing else to do. And then listen to all the noise upstairs. And finally, here they come around the corner. <laughs> and this whole line of them running past me going, he got away, he got away, he got away. I said, uh, no, he's, he's right, he's right here. He's right. And one of them finally stopped and went, huh? He's, he's right here. Just telling you, that's a, so we get this guy to the office, and, and he's doing his little interrogation thing, and then he's screaming. He's going, and this guy, he sticks this, I can't use the terminology, but this, this gun, the biggest gun I've ever seen. I carry the smallest weapon there is. It's a four-inch Glock. It, it's only the size of my fist, and I'm thinking, wow, he never, he never went through the fence. But that's how it is from his perception of things. Let's see. This one here is even more fun. It's a problem with bifocals. The, the bad guy here is, is, is that fella there. This was some kind of computer crime uh, way back in, in the early days of com computers here. And um, I'm with a senior agent. I'm the newbie out in Denver. We're down in Colorado Springs. It's about a five or six man RA, so they need help. They're gonna make, take down this whole gang. Our target is him. And we get him in something similar to like a Home Depot. So the, the old agent doesn't have his weapon. Don't ask me why. The young agent does. Not a big deal. So we go in. The old agent confronts him face to face. And the kid takes one look at him. And then he looks down the aisle at kind of in that direction. And of course, as soon as he look, I, looks, I can see he's going to run. So I draw down on him right away. His hands go up. So then we get him in the car. And we get straight away. We meet with the other agents. Well, it's my job now to take him the 70 miles from Colorado Springs all the way up to, uh, to Denver, Colorado, turn him over to the U.S. Marshals. So he's telling me, he's in my face, he's, he's six foot tall. I'm five foot seven on a good day if I'm lucky. And, and let me tell you, I'm scared 24-7 with bad guys. So. But he's telling me in my face, I've got him coughed, and he says, you ain't never getting me to Denver. And I'm like, oh yeah? So the person accompanying me is a brand new agent, uh, Rita Cassiola, she's about five foot one on a good day, and she's brand new. So I'm, I said, Rita, come over here. Pay attention to me. So I, I said, you, get in. I got him in the front seat, which is against bureau policy, but I was trained by an older agent. Got him in the front seat, hands cupped behind his back, pulled the seatbelt over him, and he's sitting down. I said, Rita, come over here. I said, I want to make sure he hears this. He said, you, listen to this. He said, you're getting to Denver. You're getting to Denver dead or alive. And I said, if one way or another, you're going. I said, Rita, you're going to sit in the seat behind him in the back seat. I said, what you have to remember is this. If he breaks bad and I can't handle him, all you have to do is take out your weapon, stick it in the back seat to where he's sitting, and pull the trigger. And keep pulling the trigger until he stops moving. Now, if I'm in the way, I expect you, and I want a promise from you. If you have to shoot me to shoot him, then you're going to shoot me. Because he is getting to Denver, dead or alive. Do you understand me? And she's all trembling and blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him and I said, you got any questions? Well, for 70 miles, he didn't move, he didn't say a word. I was like, hmm, cool, stuff works. <laughs> Would I have shot him? My wife is here. What do you think, sweetheart? Yep. My wife also worked for the FBI, but 
She's a Bridgewater girl. Uh, this is a crime scene. We'll, we'll get into this a little bit later. But this is a, a, a missing child that was, uh, the case was 25 years old by the time that we got it. And the bad guy confessed to his mother, jeez, uh, probably 10 years after, after he committed the crime. She told no one. She's on her deathbed like 10 years later because the bad guy's dead. She tells her daughter. She tells no one for another six years, then her conscience gets the best of her. Then they finally disclose, oh yeah, he killed little Andrew and he buried him uh, at the power lines. It may not show up too well here, but uh, what we had to do in this case, and you'll see the major crime scene, is we use uh, ground penetrating radar, which I'm not a, a believer in, I've used that several times, to try to discover uh, buried bodies. To me, it just doesn't work well. It's, it's like a, uh, a super uh, metal detector, that type of thing. And then what you rely on is the cadaver-sniffing dogs, the, the German shepherds. And in this case, we use the, uh, this is Boroughville, Rhode Island. So we use the, uh, the dogs from the Rhode Island State Police. So wherever they sent, we marked that, and then we grid it off. And then what we're going to do is we're going to dig down in there and see if we can find, 25 years later, he's, he's a little boy, he's only five years old, weighed 38 pounds. There, there won't be a whole lot there, but I'm thinking maybe we can get a zipper or something. I, I just don't know. And, uh, and, and years later, you, you always kind of think it through, and you say, oh, I should have done this, I should have done that. But at the time, you just can't. But this is very difficult soil, uh, very difficult to dig down, in, and you'll see a little bit later. This is my team here. When, when I was assigned to Boston, as well as carrying a full caseload, and an agent carries an average of 20 to 30 cases at a time, uh, I commanded a 32-man and female evidence recovery team, as well as an eight-man um, hazardous materials re recovery team. And uh, those are just ancillary duties that you do as an agent. Uh, a typical day starts about seven in the morning, and it probably ends about six at night. Um, there's no overtime, it's just straight time. And uh, if there's more that needs to be done, you just do it, and again, there's no such thing as overtime in the Bureau. They're just getting the job done. So we are, we are well worth what, what you pay us. Question? Yes. Um, the uh, field of forensics, I, I would imagine, has uh, changed over the years. Uh, about at what stage were uh, uh, the forensics at the time of this uh, particular case? Well, that's about what, 19, 1999, I think? Yeah. So when I get here, I got here in 97. So it's about 1999. I wouldn't say it's really changed a whole lot because that particular soil in the crime scene, is, it's almost impossible. I mean, what I really think would have happened there, based on the, the killer's age and his, his behavior patterns, he couldn't, have, and you'll see, he could not have buried the boy, uh, I think, period. And because of that, even if he covered him up a wee bit, I think that uh, wild animals would have dragged the body off. So we're probably searching. And, and we spent four summers uh, in a row uh, going to various sections right around that crime scene, trying different theories. We, we, we tried nearby water. We tried nearby woods. We tried back there. We brought in different uh, sniff dogs. We re-interviewed the sister that was alive. We dug around the sister's home. We got, we got permission and, and consent to search there and really made a mess of it. Um, so, yeah, I, it, it's just the nature of the crime scene that Forensics can only do so much. Oh, here we go. 
This is um, when I was assigned to the New York office of the FBI. Um, <laughs> we're investigating the district attorney for Dutchess County and his staff, as well as Troop K of the New York State Police. And, and the, the name Garcia there, that's a former state trooper. And we did all kinds of recordings and things of that. Um, he's the only, we didn't take him down. He is the only state trooper that, that went bad. The other state troopers in Troop K, no bad conversations, nothing bad about them. So let me just say, I worked with the New York State Police a lot. Great guys, loved every day of being with them. And in fact, they worked with us on this case. What we had done here was we, um, it was a barbershop in a small town called Havistraw, New York. It, it's, it's not, it, not even a quarter of the size of Easton. It's right up on the Hudson. And in the barbershop, what we did is we went in and put about $200,000 worth of listening equipment in. In order to put that equipment in, of course, we got to do all the paper and get all the, the consent all the way from the Department of Justice to come back and say, yeah, we're going to allow you to go in there. Well, how are you going to do that? when it's a barbershop, a place of business and all that in broad daylight. Well, we'll be there about 2 or 3 in the morning when everybody's asleep, hopefully, and get the, get the equipment inside and then get back out. So my job as part of a surveillance team at that time is to, we surround the barbershop, and then when everything is set down, then what we do is we, uh, we call in what we call the black bag team. We tell them it's all secure, they can come in, they pick the locks. I have no skill at that. They get specialized training. They go in, they pick the locks, they bring the equipment, they do all that. Our job there is to keep the site secure. If somebody should come up on the site or whatever reason, we will find a reason to, to get in their way. And, and I'll get to that when we, when we go to get the equipment out. But once we get it in, everything is great. And uh, this is Havistor. And Poughkeepsie's probably about... We're not at, we're not at Poughkeepsie. We're at, the, we're at the Air Force Base that is up, up that way off of Route 84. Great, my mind's gone dead. I can't remember the Air Force Base, but it's huge. So we have a facility up there. So we've got the listening devices on. So we're listening 24-7 into the barbershop. And day one, and what we have is we have a listening device, or listening devices, and we also have video cameras in there so we can see everything that's going on and everybody that comes in. That's how we can recognize them and things of that nature. Plus, we've got agents that have it surrounded, so they're picking off the plate numbers of all the cars that are going in so we can match them to those people. So you, you have to do all these, these other things. But it's never boring. Day one, we're sitting there, we're listening, we're looking. Okay, everything's working good. The equipment's working. That, that's a miracle in the FBI. Right? <laughs> won't, won't even go into all that. But... So we're looking, little boy comes in, sits down with his mother. No big deal, they gotta wait to get his hair cut. And he looks at the radiator that's on the side. It's right at his head level. He looks, he looks again, and then he starts to peer into the radiator. And we're like, of course he can't hear us because we're like 50 miles away going, what are you looking at? Get, get, get the kid away. Oh my God, I, I, think, I think he's seen the camera. Like, listen, listen. And he's going, mommy, 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 what's that, what's that? And luckily, she's not looking. She's not interested. Like, it's a, it's a radiator. No, no, mommy. No, no. We're like, shut up, kid. Shut up. Oh, Jesus. Get him out of there. Oh, my God. So, so luckily, she didn't, didn't pay attention to him, got him in the barber's chair, and like, got his hair cut, and he left. And it's like, oh, man. Thank God. Day one. This is great. All right. So everything's equipment. Equipment's going on. State troopers are coming in, getting their hair cut. What we think is going on is that this barber is in cahoots, allegedly, 
with the district attorney's office and the state troopers to fix tickets, whatever. I thought we had better things to do in the Bureau. So we're listening, we're watching, we're looking at all that sort of stuff. A few days go by, and the barber, he sweeps up. So we're, we're watching him sweep up, and all of a sudden one of our cameras jiggles. It's like, did you see that? The camera jiggled. What? What's he doing? His boom all of a sudden stops, and he reaches down on the floor. It's like, what's he got? He's got a wire. Uh-oh. He's pulling the wire. He's following it up into his radiator. Uh-huh. And it's like, uh-oh. And now we're looking at his, at, his, at his belly button, basically his pants, and it's like, oh, my God. And the camera really starts to wiggle. Here, here comes the camera. Working at, we're looking at him. He's looking. He doesn't know he's looking at us, but we're looking at him, and it's like, oh, my God. He's holding the camera right to his face, and he's like, so, of course, being the knuckleheads we are, we're yelling, he can't hear us. Put it down. Put it back. That's government property. <laughs> so then he, he, does, he doesn't know what to do, so he puts it back in, puts everything back in place, and, and, and then he calls somebody. His girlfriend, she comes in, or his wife, and, he, and she, oh, what should we do? What should we do? Call Tony. Tony knows. It's, it's New York, so it's always great. Well, Tony. Tony will know what to do. We've got to get Tony in here. Well, well geez, I, I don't know. Tony, he's the one. Are we going to stand guard overnight and guard it? And of course, we're yelling, and at the same time, we're calling down to New York City to say, we got a crisis, because this is the, the best, brand-newest equipment in the Bureau. It's the latest technology. We can't lose the technology. We can't have that out there. So it's like, what are we going to do? Well, you know, we could we just get in our cars. We could drive this. Hey, FBI, that's our equipment. Get aside. We're taking it out. You know, it's like, no, no, no. And then there's a big fight between the, the, the big uh, leaders of the division, the SACs, the ASACs. All those guys, and it's like, well, do we go get the equipment? Do we force the equipment? What are we going to do? It's like, well, let's, 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 let's think it through, you know. And uh, in the interim time, Tony arrives. So, so, so Tony does the same thing with the camera, and he's looking at it, and he's going, geez, like, this, this is serious stuff. This is like CIA stuff. Yeah, that's right. You tell them CIA. They're interested in the barbershop and have a store in New York, the middle of nowhere. Yeah, right. But thank God he thinks that. Let, let, let's keep him going. So he puts it back and goes, geez, I, I don't know what we, got, what we can do. You know, Should we stay here all night? Are you crazy? We could get shot. Those guys might be looking and listening at us right now. And, of course, we go, yeah, you bet we are. Put the camera back. So, so they put the camera back. They, they lock the place down. Finally, at headquarters city, New York City, they make a decision. We're going in at nighttime. We're taking it out surreptitiously. You guys surround the place. So it's 2 a.m. in the morning. It's, it's a summer day like this. And you think, who's going to be out? Pull up. And it's like, you're not going to believe this. There's a guy a short distance away from the barbershop. It's, it's like being parked at the end of this building from one end. He's working on his car radio. 2 a.m. in the morning. And there's two ladies sitting out here in front of their house, off to my right, drinking beers. In lounge chairs. You can't make this stuff up. It's like, what are we going to do? Well, uh, yeah, what are we going to do? Jeez, we got to get in there. We got to get the equipment out for it. Tony comes back with his buddies, whoever they are. And I was like, ah. So what we end up doing is we end up blocking the two women. Two agents pretend to be INS agents in those days. That there was no ICE. They pretend to be INS agents, so they're getting out and they're talking to her. They're, they're looking for somebody that doesn't even exist. And, and luckily, the kid working on his radio, he went in, in for the night, so all we had to do was keep that blocked. So what we do is we run a van down and back, and as the van comes back, 
the black bag agent jumps out the side door, rolls in the dark, and gets in the dark, and gets in the door, and gets that stuff out. So then we gotta go through the same drill one more time after he's got all the equipment to get him out so that we can get the equipment out. But that's a typical day in the FBI. They don't make movies of that kind of stuff. So eventually, did, did we end up, uh, end up getting the district attorney? No. And, uh, oh, oh. Well, yeah, the, the next morning when they come in, of course, we still got a, a wire in, one wire we can listen, but we can't see. And of course, then they're panicking. They really don't know what to do. You know, the guy's like, ah. But, but at any rate, we didn't get the district attorney. There were no dirty troopers, which is great. And uh, about six months after we're done, we shut everything down. The district attorney's girlfriend, this is why, you know, you never make a woman mad. I, I have the highest respect for women. She just comes forward out of the clear blue, doesn't know we have an investigation, and says, yeah, he's been taking bribes, and I can prove it. I know where the money is, and I'll wear the wire. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> After we went through this whole circus thing. But, yeah, so, hey, so we got him. So hell hath no, no fury like a woman's wrath? You bet. I believe it. So is the history of the He couldn't He couldn't believe it. This is, uh, it doesn't show up as well as, as I hoped that would, but this is not a crime scene. I don't know if you remember when Egyptian Air Flight 990 um, crashed off the coast of Long Island and uh, every, everybody passed away and all that sort of thing. So the first thing that happens in the FBI, because we're different, we're all eight personalities, is, well, okay, it could be a terrorism event. We're going to be investigating it with the National Transportation Safety Board. Until the National Transportation Safety Board can rule it an accident, the FBI has priority of the investigation. We run the show as though it's a terrorism matter. If they determine it's accidental, then we take a secondary role, continue to assist them, and they take over. Um, but in this case, the first thing we're doing is FBI Boston is arguing with FBI New York. Whose case is this? Who's going to take this? FBI New York wants it because it's a, it's a big deal case, but it becomes FBI Boston's case, how they figured it out in the oceans beyond me. But working this investigation, what they had, they had some type of a trawler with a, a crane that could actually dredge down thousands of feet on the ocean floor, bring all that debris back up, load it on board vessels, and then they would bring it to a Quonset out at, at uh, Davis, Davisville, or Davis Point. It used to be called Quonset Point. Is that right? Down in Rhode Island. That's a separate building. You'll see a different one a, a little bit later. So, but what you're looking at here, and again, this isn't what you think. It's not, the FBI's world is so totally different. These guys here, this is Egyptian Air Flight 990. These are disguised Egyptian um, intelligence officers. My job in that particular day is to keep my eye on them, watch their hands, make sure they don't put some type of a explosive device in there. Because for whatever reason, they want this to be a terrorism event, not the type of thing where, in reality, what happened is, and of course, now with everything that's happened since the 1990s, I'm, I, I rethink this myself and go, maybe the pilot was pulling a terrorism event. But the, but the pilot, before he, he, he turns off all, all of the autopilots and things like that, and he drives a plane at Mach 5 into the ocean. And that, that's how it goes down into the ocean floor. And as he does that, he's saying Allah Akbar and all that sort of stuff. Turns out that he'd gotten into a jam in New York City or whatever. I think it was over a woman or something like that. And he was berated 
by another senior member of, of, of Egyptian Air, of the airlines. That guy was on board the plane, and he told him, your job's over, your future's over, your career's over. So we speculate that, well, he just decided he'll kill himself and he'll kill that guy with him, and heck with the other passengers. Um, so that's a, one of the FBI crime scenes. And I spent about almost six weeks going through all that stuff with other agents. In fact, what ends up happening here is there is um, these disaster scenes, they take on a smell of their own. It becomes kind of a gut-wrenching smell, but, but you kind of get used to it. And, and you can you develop these skills or crafts that you don't want to develop. You can recognize if something has come from your crash by smelling it. Um, so whenever I came home at the end of the workday, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wear my clothes in the house. Uh, I got undressed in the garage and that type of thing. Every so often we'd get a call from a local PD in Rhode Island. Clothes had washed up ashore, this type of thing here. Can you come down and maybe go to Egyptian Air 990? So you, sometimes you do things and you don't realize what you're doing. So yeah, they call me and you know, they send me down. I go down all dressed up like a G-man like this. They bring the stuff in and... And the first thing I do, and these, these are local, local police, I grab the clothes, and I'm smelling them. And they're looking at me like, I go, no, that's not, no, that's not us, no, that's not our case, that's not our case. It took me a while to realize you know, what, what I was doing, because I'd gone to several different PDs as, a, as I would get called over the months, and I realized, like, this must look pretty bizarre, but I can just tell by the smell. You know? And there'll be another case that comes up with that. Um, this is Egyptian air photo number two and this is just more of the wreckage and debris and it's, it's a pretty huge uh, facility that we're in there um, this, is, this is the type of crime scene where um, you just never know what's going to happen and uh, we would find hands uh, feet, arms we never found a, a, a complete body um, and as you're searching you come across these things, hands and feet like that and different things there was one event where we found it was a woman's arm, and being under the ocean, it turns it as white as, as my shirt is, the, the, whatever body parts come up. And she had a, a, a ring. It was a, a diamond ring, a big fancy ring type of thing that, that a woman would wear, but, and only the two bones of her arm. And it, it's one of those things you just kind of remember. And uh, I always remember reading. Um, what we tried to do was, one, Make sure it's not a terrorism event, so we're looking for terrorist notes, all those types of things. And two, identify victims' property so that we can return it to their families. And obviously we couldn't identify the ring to her husband, but he was able to describe it and all that. So we got the ring returned to him. And I kind of always remember the, um, the article. He, uh, it was in the, the Providence Journal. He, he said he, he just wanted to know how, how we found the ring and this and that. And I kept thinking... Oh, God, no. You, you don't want to know. You, you don't want to have a clue. One of the other events that, that's there that was bizarre, to say the least, is one of the agents, um, we're going through stuff, and, and he picks up what looked like a wig, and attached to the wig, was, he thought, a mask. And we're all looking at it and going, that, that doesn't make any sense. It, you know, Halloween mask? No, that was a woman's head without the skull. But the skin had come off and the hair intact, and it was like, oh, God. So, anyway, this, this is the standard job of an FBI agent, though. They don't uh, 
They don't televise these things. People have no clue. But that's fine. We're here to serve. This is uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. After Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita, um, the Bureau gets involved in fraud against government programs. So I don't know if you remember, but New Orleans got washed out, hit pretty bad, and all that sort of stuff. So the, the Boston office is told you will assign one agent down there for three months uh, to investigate every claim that's being made. So I volunteered and I got to go, which was cool. And um, the interesting thing was, what I discovered is, is my territory, because we work by counties, my territory would basically be the size of Connecticut. And if you turned it kind of on its side, that was my whole jurisdiction. Jeff, they, they don't call them counties, they call them parishes and stuff like that. I had the most difficult time communicating because they talk funny, not like me. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be amazed. I had, to, I had to grab little kids to, hey, come here, come, come, ask him, ask her, hold on, you know, and that type of thing. But, but as I, I went down there, I was looking at these houses, and if, I don't know if it shows up well enough there, but those are, all the roofs are rusted, and this, this is where people live. And even these things. And they're filing a claim with the government to say that the, all of this was the result of Hurricane Rita and Katrina. Well, that's the result of like 10 or 20 years, if not 40 years. I don't know has to do with Hurricane Rita and, and Katrina. And, and the thing I would run into the most often with these people was they would say, um, well, I thought this was free money. Like, no, it's not free money. You're supposed to have damage here to your property. Um, I don't want to say get carried away, but at one time I, I was trying to arrest an entire uh, fire department because they had all colluded, gotten together, submitted their claims to FEMA, and each got $2,000 of free money. And I would go to their homes and, and, and interview them and say, show me the damage. What was, what was the damage here? And, and some of it would be like they'd try to say a, a, a little bit of water damage on the carpet to the front door, probably about an inch wide. That's it? And, and, let me, and, and, and so I would tell them, and let me tell you something. Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita, they didn't hit my territory. One went up the west of my territory, one went up the east of my territory, because I talked with all, all the local sheriff's departments out there, and it was like, so what was the damage? What was it like here? So, oh, no, well, we got some winds and stuff like that, but the heavy rains, they went to the west with Hurricane Rita, and went to the east with Hurricane Katrina. So it's like, but FEMA was paying out the money left and right. So... Just another day in the bureau. Let's see, shortcut to Louisiana. Right? Well, that's enough. Oh, there's Louisiana too. Let's just see. Pretty country down there. I will tell you this, and, and, and these are like real small towns, uh, small communities. The one thing I was definitely impressed with, though, and a little shaken with, first, uh, the children down there, no matter where you went, they had the best manners in the world. I take pride in our manners being from here to where I was brought up. But I was just amazed. And, and uh, I think I was known as Mr. William. When they address you down there, that's how they address you. I would get phone calls in, in the, the Lafayette office, pick up the phone, and I, I need to speak to Mr. William. So I'm like, hey, you know Mr. William in the office here? It's, that's you. It's me. The, the FBI? Oh. Oh, I'm Mr. William. Yeah, yeah, Mr. William. By the time I'm leaving, I, by the time I leave in three months, that's how I'm talking. Miss Hattie, Miss this, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But, but there are uh, great manners down there, and even the bad guys have manners, because when you go to arrest them, they're polite, 
they, they cooperate. I mean, I, I was actually a little bit shaken because it's like, I don't know how to deal with this. Everybody here is just so polite and nice. It's like you're supposed to be yelling at me, threatening me, kill me. You're going to kill my wife, my family. It's like, oh, no. Yes, sir. No, sir. It's like, wow. It's a whole other world. Okay. If you have any questions, don't, don't hesitate. I will say, I don't denigrate anybody else's job, but to me, I had the, the best job in the world. Every day was an adventure. And I looked up, I, I couldn't wait to go to work every morning, and I didn't want to go to work at the end of the day. Poor wife, she had to put up with that, but hey. It's too bad. This is, uh, I'm assigned to as a valence squad in New York City. You can even see the date there. That's Sally Labuglia. Sally is a capo in the Gambino crime family. My job every day is to sit near Sally's house with, a, with another squad of agents, and we follow Sally around to see who he's talking to, where he's going, where the meetings are happening at, that type of thing. But it gets better. Oh, and these are the days when uh, pay phones, they really worked, and people used them. Okay, there's no cell phones, there's none of that, so you've got to go, kind of go back in time, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but uh, come on. Here we go. That's Sally's Cadillac. That's his car. And he only lives about a quarter mile away. He gets in the car, he parks here, and he's using the telephone all the time. So, of course, what, we, what we're doing is uh, processing federal paper so that we can get the records of the telephone booth so we can find out, because we're recording the time and the telephone number, and we'll check the records that come in. We'll get the telephone number that Sal called, and uh, then we can do um, background investigation on whoever that thing goes to. Are they a, a criminal person, someone of interest also? So the investigations kind of unravel and, and they kind of take on a life of their own. And sometimes, excuse me, that's why it can take four or five years to, to bring it uh, to a conclusion. But in this particular case, what Sally doesn't know is that he's on the telephone, he's talking to an undercover FBI agent who's going to sell him a uh, duffel bag full of cocaine, or it's vice versa. But... Um, so he doesn't know that we're watching, we're listening, and he's talking to the FBI setting up the deal. It's great. <laughs> this is uh, Sally's house, uh, or Sal, I should say, and that's Papa Sal uh, over there, and that's an NYPD cruiser just parked there, the normal stuff. And what we have to do here is we're going to put in listening devices now inside the house. We've been listening on the telephone, but we think that there's criminal conversation going on inside the house. In order to do that, that's more surreptitious and more intrusive on the Fourth Amendment, your right to privacy and freedom of, of search. Um, we have to write more paper, get that to the U.S. attorney, get that to a federal judge, swear to it in a federal judge, and then the federal judge has to say, yes, you may, or no, you may not, agent. Go back and do more work and try to convince me again. So at any rate, we've identified where the alarm system is. Later that night, or whenever we can put Sally and his father out of the house and his family, we have the black bag squad standing by. So we'll call that, that out. They'll come in there and they'll make us a repetitious entry as we surround the house. We keep an eye on Sally and the family. Now, if Sal happens to be coming back and we can't get our squad out in time, what we're going to do is we'll create a traffic accident right with them. We will make a stop and we will get everything in the world involved so that we get time enough to get our agents back out. That very rarely happens. This is a, 
Tommy Karate Patera. This is a, a killer for the Gambino crime family. Allegedly, he has 40 kills uh, to his belt. And, of course, that's my nonsense comment up there. Tommy Patera in another squeeze. He had two different girlfriends, and I never knew their names, but I'm taking the photographs and following them. He had the blonde girlfriend, and he had the brunette girlfriend. I don't know. And that, that's how he would, he would live his life. Um, let's just see. This is him here, reputed mobster Tommy Patera says feds threatened him to squeal on John Gotti or face the death thing. Um, he's a bona fide killer and probably almost caught me twice. In Brooklyn at nighttime, it, it's very nice, it's very quiet, the streets are serene, and, and one night, well, well, we were putting bugs in his car, listening to his conversations, and within 24 hours in the first car, boom, he found the, found the device. Because we're, we're sitting there the next day, and we're the surveillance squad. There's another whole squad in downtown Manhattan. They're the investigative squad. So they're actually doing the listening and making the recordings and the paperwork. So first day, the bug works great in, in car number one. Second day, we're on it. We're watching it. Tommy's not coming. It's like, jeez, mm, it's kind of weird, you know, out of character for him. Finally, you know, someone in the office communicates to us out in the field, and it's like, no, 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 he's out. He's at such and such a location. Well, he never touched the car, and he never went back to the car. Somehow he found the device. Okay, so then we go sit back on his home, find, a new, find him in a new car, put a bug in that car, off he goes. For day one, we get conversation. Day two, the car's not moving. He found it again. Jeez. All right, back to the house the third day. What's he driving now? He's driving some rental car with Alabama tag, or Georgia tags on it. It's like, well, okay. So we're sitting there at nighttime. It's like 2 in the morning. We've put him down. Summertime. It's all quiet. And we're thinking, geez, you know, I wonder where he got the rental car. Again, it's, it's for, in furtherance of the investigation. wonder what name he's using. Maybe he's using an alias and stuff like that. So we're talking, going, you know, a lot of people, what they do, they'll leave that contract up on the, on the dashboard or the driver's seat. We might be able to identify that name. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys got him, right? You got the, he's, he's, in his, he's in his apartment, right? Yeah. He said, well, I'm out here alone with the car. I could walk over. I mean, it's sitting right under a streetlight. I could look in and see what's going on. And, of course, you know, I'm, I'm thinking other things, but the camera's rolling, so I can't, can't say what else I was thinking. But at any rate, so I'm saying, well, I could walk up and I could look in the window and see if the contract's there. So it's very quiet. You can hear my footsteps. I walk up to the car. I get, I, I get almost within five feet of the car, and I'm looking right at it, and it's pretty apparent I'm heading for the driver's side door, and I hear footsteps coming from my right. I just kind of glance over a wee bit. Who's coming right at me? Tommy Patera. I'm like, oh, I thought they had him. So I step around the car. Luckily, the other street is totally black, and I run as fast as I can. And I can see him looking around his car like, what was that all about? <laughs> all right, well, we got away with that one. So then um, we're following him one day out of Brooklyn into Manhattan, going over the famous Brooklyn Bridge. And that's a miracle if we can get across that. We've got a whole surveillance team, six cars. Only Tommy gets across and myself. Everybody else gets tied up in traffic. It's great. So it's just him and I alone. I don't think he's ever seen me. I don't think he knows what I look like. So that, that's not a big deal. But he parks down at, at uh, 20, 23rd Street and probably 7th Ave. He finds a place to park, which is lucky. I find, find a place to park, and, and he's, in, in our term, he's out taking a leg. He's out of the car. He's taking a leg. So I call the other team that's still stuck. So he's taking a leg. I'm following him. He's got something in his hand. So maybe it's going to be a drug deal. This would be great. i got to get photos and all that sort of stuff. So he's walking pretty fast up, up the one block up there, and all of a sudden he gets to the end, and he just disappears. 
So I run up the block. I'm, I get, get to what they call uh, the West Side Highway. I'm looking left. I'm looking right. There's no Tommy Patera. But there's an, a weird-looking office building on my right on the corner. There's no, there's a lobby area, there's glass doors, but there's nobody there and there's no counter or anything. And stairs seem to go just downstairs, as though there's almost no upstairs. But I can hear these bangs, so I'm like, he, maybe he went in there. So I rush down the stairs and, and I hear these bangs that I'm going down this hallway in a basement-type area. And they're getting louder and louder. So finally I get to the end and there's no place to go, but there's double doors on my right. And I'm, I'm going a little bit too fast. You know, I, I should have been cooler and calmer, but you can't, you can't lose the eye. And that's, that's what I am at that moment. I'm the eye. Can't lose the eye. So get to the double doors, push them, push them open fast. I walk in, and there's about 12 guys all bent over a, a billiard table. They all stop. They all look up at me. And at the end of the billiard table, looking at me is Tommy Patera with a gun in his hand, pointing in my direction. And I'm like, hmm. This is bad. I can't say FBI. No, no, we're not giving that up. I don't think he's, is he really pointing? Does he mean to shoot? It's like, hmm. So you start to tap dance as fast as you can. And, 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 and to be a good agent, you have to be a good actor. And you have to think on your toes, and you have to be quick. So I'm looking at him. They're looking at me. And I'm, I'm, I start to look around quick, and I'm going, it's a gun range. <sighs> okay, I'll just, yeah, yeah, I'll pretend I'm a... A customer. I'm interested in the gun range. I'll, I'll go over to that counter that has all the guns and look at them, and, and, and I'll, I'll look at the schedule and the time. These guys aren't moving. They're not even breathing. They're all still looking at me. <laughs> it's like, so after I do my little skit of like, okay, yeah, I see the times. Okay, I see gun. Okay, I guess, yeah, I guess there's a customer. I'm done, and I slide out the back door, and it's like, they don't move all the time I'm gone. But so finally I, I, I get out, and I get away from Patera. So... That's kind of a couple of times that he got me. But uh, he buried all of his victims at the, uh, at the Fresh Kills uh, landfill, uh, 40 of them. But that's just, a, again, another typical day in the Bureau. The only other thing I had with him in the Gambino crime family was further uptown, there was a, uh, a tailor shop where you buy really fancy suits. So that's where they would go in there and all that sort of stuff. And we had, we had the, the eye on that. We were watching to see who was coming in and coming out. Well, the substantive squad called out and said, Kate, hey, can you have an agent go inside? We think our wire went down. They were listening to, to like a baseball game, but we don't hear the game anymore. Can someone get in and, and see what's going on in there? So, Man, you bet. I'm, I'm the guy. I'm, I'm dressed down kind of like a working type guy with a, you know, look pretty grubby and all that. So nothing like a G-man. So, but I go in there, and as soon as I walk in there, there's kind of a, a stairs that come down from the very top come down to the main floor, and, it's a, and the business is only about this big. And as soon as you walk in, at the very end of the business is a counter. And the only guy at the counter is some guy, you've all seen The Godfather, Luca Brasi. This guy was Luca Brasi's cousin or brother. He was that big. He's got the big blue overcoat on, the hat. He's got his arms crossed, and he's looking right at me. Like, oh, geez. And there's a woman comes running down the stairs, and I'm trying to get down to where the Luca Brasi guy is, see if I can hear the radio, right? So, hey, so I'm going, this woman runs in front of me, and she's going, can I help, can I help? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm interested in a suit, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get around her, and she won't let me get around her. I'm trying to, I'm slowly walking her back, and, and then the owner comes down, a small little guy like that, and he runs, and he takes over, and he goes, well, what are you looking for? Well, I'm get, I, I we're going to a wedding, yeah, and, and I'm looking for a suit, so I, that's what I need. Uh, what size are you? Oh, I, I don't know, and, and I'm, I'm pushing him back. I'm getting closer. Finally, I can hear it. The radio's on. It's like, j- just about hear it. And he goes, oh, what size? And he, he throws that tape around me, 
and he's got me now. And it's like, and, and he goes, let's see what your waist is. And when he hits my waist, he hits my gun. He freezes, I freeze, and it's like, I really think it's best if I come back on Saturday with my wife. So I'll see you then. <laughs> Run back out. It's like, yeah. <laughs> These are not the things of FBI movies. But this, this is how the job gets done. This is FBI failure. This is, uh, it's not Tommy Patera, but this is Willie Boy Johnson. He is a, God bless him, he was an informant for the FBI. His identity was revealed by a city district attorney and the fact that he worked for the FBI. We, uh, as agents, uh, called human intel. One of our biggest parts of my job is to develop informants, people that we can wire up against the bad guys, people that can tell us what the bad guys are doing. Willie Boy Johnson was one of those guys. And we, we were following two guys that were new with the Gambino crime family uh, in, all around Brooklyn, and, and, and there's nothing worse than following bad guys when they're lost because they do all kinds of weird stuff, and, and you, can't just, you can't have six cars turning around in the same gas station all the time and then going the opposite direction or driving across that, that median strip that divides highways. I mean, you all can't do that, but that's what we're doing, and we're following them on left and right. And we end up in here at the end of the night, and, and they seem confused. And then they, they end up going into Connecticut, and some other team takes over, and, and that's that, at least we think. So I'm home the next day, and, and I'm getting ready for my shift or whatever, which is an evening shift, watching the news. And all of a sudden, this is on the news. And I recognize the spot, because I was sitting not far from there, watching the cell, the Buglia, go up and talk to somebody else in an apartment on the left. So mission failure. We, we failed to protect uh, Willie Boy Johnson. Teen uh, kidnapped. This, uh, this young boy here, although he, he's about 16, he's got the mental capacity of probably about a first grader. And he's taken off a bus in Denver, Colorado. A couple of guys pull up in a Crown Vic Ford Victoria, which looks like a police car. They get some fake badges. They go on the bus, say, hey, they're Denver PD. They need to take them. Off they go with him, and, and the phone call goes into the parents. Hey, we need $270,000 or the boy dies, that type of thing. So the FBI gets involved, Denver PD, and all that, all that sort of stuff. And, and off we go. And we conduct surveillance with that. At the same time... Um, we have something called Night Stalker, and in these days, it's 1986. All that infrared photography barely existed. But Night Stalker is a Mitsubishi plane or jet coming out of D.C. with all of that equipment, and what they're going to do is they're going to help us surveil the drop site because we've talked to the parents. They want to make the drop. They want to pay the money. They won't let us put a bug or any device in the money. So an older agent is going to ride in the back seat, and when they, they pull up, and, and, and it's almost like the kidnapping exercise they give you as a new agent at Quantico, it's always leave the money at the stop sign. And as this is playing out, I'm going, this is just like Quantico, leave the money at the stop sign. They must have been reading our stuff, but okay. So it, it, it's the last road in the prairie in the Denver metropolitan area. The, the only thing next after this road is Kansas, which is three hours away. Nothing but prairie, and there's not a tree there's no water. There's nothing out there. It's, it's not like good old New England. But so we're all following the car. The agent's going to get out of the back seat with the money, that type of thing, and wait for the bad guy. And everybody's turning left after we go past the mother when she stops at the stop sign and, and puts the money out. Except us. I convince the agent we'll, we'll take a right. We're the only ones going right. No one's covering the right because it's a dirt road, and we can get up there, and bad guys may be up there. Who knows? So everything kind of settles down. Some agents got, got the radio tied up. Nobody's really got the eye at the stop sign. 
where the money's at. But that's how they wanted it done, the, the managers. That, that's kind of the problem when you bring managers into a crime scene. You need the agents to run it. But anyway, they finally realize nobody's got the eye on the money. So then they call and say, well, who's the closest unit out there and blah, blah, blah. So it's us and another unit, so we're racing down there to get the eye on the money. And as we're pulling up, shots are fired. And um, it's pitch black, you don't really know what's going on. So we surround the area. I've got an M16 rifle because I'm a SWAT team member at that time. And um, we've got agents on the road, so there's only one direction the bad guys can go. And, and essentially, they'd be kind of like off over to this area here. Where, where you and I are sitting, we've got this all surrounded. What we'd be looking at here is a, is a small, marshy area. And when you, when you come up on the rise, it's a huge field, almost a mile, mile long. And it's a winter night, full moon, crunchy white snow on the ground, perfect visibility. I'm not a great shot, but I can take the shot if the, if the bad guy comes out over the horizon. But then I'm thinking, I can't take the shot because we, we don't have the kit. Uh, I'll run him down on foot. That's not a problem because I haven't asked anybody. So we're all laying there, we're waiting, and someone says, you know what? If they beat us through the marshy, marshy area, there'd be footprints in the snow. There you go, it's working a little bit. Yeah, there'd be footprints in the snow. Anybody got a flashlight? I'm the only one with a flashlight. Yeah, I do. Can you check the snow? Just be on the, yeah, I'll do that. So I'm walking back and forth with my flashlight in front of the marshy area. It's not a track. So I tell them, well, there's no tracks. They must be back in the marsh area, and I'm pointing to it. And two other new agents are with me. We're all new agents. The, the, the older agents are smart enough. They're laying back and undercover. It's like, we're not going to be stupid. So about that time, Night Stalker is overhead and crackles over our radio. Because this is Night Stalker, blah, blah, blah. I've, I've got uh, infrared on. I can see people on the ground, you know, where you're at. So I was telling them, well, well, what can you see? I see three people. They're, they're moving. Well, that's us. That, that, that's the agents. He says, yeah, and there's a fourth person. Where's the fourth person? You're walking right at him. It's like, and it's pitch black. We can't see anything. So sure enough, there's the bad guy on the ground. So, of course, you know, we give me old FBI, put your hands up or whatever. He can't because he's been shot in the groin. His, his intestines are actually hanging out and all that sort of stuff. But he's got the ransom money. So, of course, we're, we're yelling at him, where's the kid? Where's the kid? Where's the child? And he's going, and he's begging for his life. He's saying, oh, please don't let me die. Don't let me die. And it's like, unless you tell us where the boy is, you're going to die out here in the prairie. Where is the boy? And, and your adrenaline's really pumping. I, I, can't, I can't do enough justice to it, but, but <laughs> nothing matters except him. So he's begging for his life, and he's giving us one-word answers. Where's the boy? Where's the boy? On the road. What road? On the road. With a friend. With a friend. Where? Where? In a car. In a, what car? A blue car. A blue car. And so, you know, we're, we're still interrogating him. And then uh, his eyes roll back in his head, and he dies. But Luckily for us, at that same time, the parents got a phone call. And the phone call was from a phone booth, the good old days when you could have those things. The killer's two miles down the road. He said, I heard the shots. He said, I want the money or the kid dies and all this. So agents head off to that phone booth. They surround the place. And there's only one blue car in there. They get that guy out of the car. They're talking to him. And somehow he ends up leading them to this young man. Now, I'm from here, so if I tell you it's cold, and I'm dressed for the cold, I got the boots, the hat, the mittens, every, and I'm freezing to death. I'm dying. They find him staked out in the prairie, T-shirt, jeans, no shoes, no socks. Another 20 minutes, he would have passed away. Oh, standing kidnapping case. Oh, okay. Ah, this is an environmental crime. This is uh, Johnston, Rhode Island, metals recycling. And I spent a year doing this case, and this will give you, show you some of the frustration 
that we can go through as agents. But the case itself, what these guys are doing is they're going up to Worcester, Mass, and they're taking um, residue of cars that are crushed up there. And a, a lot of that foam and stuff, the dashboard things, believe it or not, it contains PCBs. So they're transporting this stuff out of Worcester, Mass, into Johnston, Rhode Island, so that's, that's a crime in itself, just transporting the hazardous material, putting it in here, and then they're going to take that hazardous waste and they're going to deposit it in the landfill as though it's clean fill. But what's going on here is we started it as an environmental crime because um, right here they've done a man-made ditch. The piles don't show up as well as, as, as they could. Let's just see if there's another one. Here's a better one. So these, these are the piles here of the residue. And they've created this ditch which goes into this lagoon, which goes into a stream which then ends up in the Wanasquatucket River, 10th most polluted river in the United States. So it takes me a year to put the case together. I'm, I'm hiding, hiding in the lagoon, taking photos. We're following my, uh, this is an FBI plane. Uh, each division has its own planes. So we've got planes up, we've got the Rhode Island State Police working with us, making stops and all that sort of stuff. And this is the day that we took it down in the wintertime. And what we were able to do is we had to take a representative samples out of each of these squares that you see. We had to uh, conduct the, the search like it was a post-blast bomb investigation. So we take a sample from each one of these squares. We have to give a sample to the defense attorneys. And everybody's going to process it to see if it's got high levels of PCBs and all that sort of stuff. So it does. It ends up we're right. We got a great case. But somebody tells the U.S. Attorney's Office, if you take out the ISOs, it's going to close down metal recycling. That's going to cost jobs in Rhode Island. Can't this thing be handed civilly? So sure enough, it gets handed civilly. Nobody goes to jail. It's a $700,000 fine. And I'm bouncing off the wall in the U.S. Attorney's Office screaming and yelling. And like, ah. Just like, you've got to be kidding this is, uh, this is metals recycling in here, and this is a residential area. So these are all homes that people live in. So they're dealing with all this stuff. They're breathing, sucking all that sort of stuff in. And this is Route 95 south over here this way. This is uh, Heads for Sale. This is Dr. Specta out in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's selling heads in Denver, Colorado. Get a call one day. It's, it's from... Uh, Federal Express, they were moving boxes off some plane or something at, at, at the Denver airport, and they would take the heads and they would put them in the black plastic bags, put formaldehyde in there, seal it up somewhat, they put it in a box and ship it by FedEx through the, oh, uh, the plane part of FedEx. And uh, so one day they're unloading all that sort of stuff off a conveyor belt. The, the box falls apart, the box comes up, bag opens and heads are on the floor at this location. So they, they give me the case. So I spend the next day uh, photographing heads for, for eight hours a day. It turns out that uh, Dr. Spector's got a deal going on with a, a guy, I guess they call the, the Beaner at the, uh, it's a university, maybe University of Pennsylvania, I forget up there now. But what happens is they, they need cadavers for the for the, for the medical students, that type of thing. So if a cadaver comes, comes in without a head on it, then they don't want the cadaver. So the beaner will call up to the professors, whoever runs that part of, of the school, tell them, well, I got three or four without heads and this and that. All the time he's cutting the heads off and he's shipping them out uh, for Dr. Spector to Colorado. Um, so after we get done all day, 
The other agent with me, he couldn't stand it, so he was outside uh, losing his lunch the entire time we're photographing. We get done with that, and then the, the young lady says, oh, uh, do you want to look at the arms? Like, arms? They had vaults full of arms. It's like, people's arms. So it's like, so that was Dr. Spector. <laughs> this is a deathbed confession. This is the one that, that I showed you a little bit in, in Boroughville. And uh, I'll just show you the crime scene. And so remember, this is 25 years after his disappearance. The, the guy that did it knows. His mother knows. Finally, his sister knows. And finally, after the, uh, the guy dies and the mother dies and the sister finally comes forward. This is the crime scene. So where do you look? Little Andrew is buried between the poles of the power line. Great. Wood poles. And this is the, a road that kind of leads in there. So the only way, only way we could get any leads on this at all was we brought in the uh, cadaver-sniffing dogs from Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So wherever they hit or they sent, we mark that. And then once we have the dogs out of there and we're done with that, then we dig each uh, flag that we find to see what we can find. Uh, very frustrating. The, gro- the ground is hard. It's not sandy. It's mostly rocky, and there's just no way you could have buried anybody. And you can see here the, the rocks here, but we've got metal detectors going. We're digging. We're doing everything we can. We even bring in the, uh, the city of Boroughville or the town of Boroughville. We've got their highway department bringing in uh, cranes, backhoes, and uh, as I said, we, we went at this for four years. Nothing. Same thing here. Um, this is uh, Hayden Clark. He's a serial, serial killer. And his grandparents or parents lived in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. And it's close, I guess, to the Wellfleet Police Department. So he was uh, telling somebody. They had brought him out, I guess, in the wintertime. And they'd searched behind the parents' house to try to locate the body of, of a teenage victim that he said he had murdered and buried there. Turned out he buried her first in the town cemetery and then moved her body from the town cemetery to the uh, ground behind his, uh, his grandparents' place. So um, they called us and again, we did the cadaver-sniffing dog stuff, all that sort of stuff. We dig it all by hand. We come up with nothing. Now, the homeowner is a brand-new person. It, it's, it's not his family any, any longer and all that sort of stuff. And we've asked his permission. Can we bring in a, a, a bobcat and dig up your entire backyard? Because we're, you know, we're on the phone to the agent in Baltimore saying, hey, you know, we've got 27 hits. We've dug them all. We're down X amount. We're not coming up with nothing. And you're telling me he still insists that the girl's body is there. He's, he's adamant and blah, blah, blah. I said, fine, you know, we'll, we'll see what we can do next. So we, we rent the bobcat. We get permission from these people, and we dig their entire backyard down to almost about six feet deep, the whole yard. And we never, never found her or found anything uh, related to her. So mission failure. This is uh, Egyptian here. There's the, the co-pilot. I, I kind of already went through that with you a, a wee bit. So. But that was him, Allah Akbar. This is uh, the other part of that investigation where I was posted. Um, when the plane went down, first thing that happened is a lot of luggage would surface. So the Coast Guard would grab that. We put agents out on Coast Guard cutters grabbing all that luggage. And then we set up uh, an investigation site inside a different Quonset hut, the other Quonset hut that you saw earlier with all the body parts and the, and the wreckage of the plane is over there. Um, so what I'm looking for here is any notes that might help us verify whether or not this was, was a, uh, a terrorist event. 
And um, you can see I'm, I'm wearing the mask and all that sort of stuff. So I spent a few weeks in, in there every day. Um, but but we, we made those, those, those benches to drain the clothes off and all that sort of stuff there. Um, that just gives you an idea of, of there is no limit to what the FBI can and will do uh, when assigned an investigation. Um, the, the strength of the Bureau is that we're about 11,000 agents now and about 50 or 60 support personnel. So if there is a need, the Bureau will mobilize entire divisions. And, and you know, we, we had FBI Newark there, FBI New York, FBI Boston. We had FBI Kansas. We had all kinds of people that are going through all this debris until NTSB declared it was not necessarily a terrorist act, but it was the, the act of him. Because they found the black box, and I guess they were able to get the recordings off the black box with him screaming Allah Akbar and the other pilot fighting with him and something to get control of the airplane. These are the guys from 9-11. Um, unfortunately, yeah, they late in a dollar shot, so the, the Bureau does a great job of identifying them. Um, after they've killed 3,000 American citizens. Uh, I'm not too happy about that, but it is what it is. Um, when that happened, I, I got a call from, from D.C. They wanted to bring my 32-man team to New York right away, mounted up the team, ready to go, and the special agent in charge of the division says, stop, you're not going. I said, but New York is called. You saw what happened? He said, nope, you're going to stay here in case it happens here. He said, we have to be ready for the next attack. I'm like, oh, great. Plus, what we ended up doing was about 30 searches. Uh, we searched, um, uh, yeah, not apartments, hotel rooms where they had stayed. We retrieved the cars that they had driven. Uh, we, we fingerprinted them all and tried to identify any other clues that might lead us to, one, who they were, two, where they were, three, who might have supply them support and assistance in four when was the next attack coming. So these are the cars. We go through them about top to bottom. And this happens to be a facility that, that we have. It's an FBI facility where we can bring everything indoors and kind of work it over a bit. Um, this is Mohammed Atta's shirt. One of the interesting things about Mohammed Atta is that, um, if I have it right, I think he, he somehow, night before the attack, he goes to someplace up in Maine. Uh, I forget the exact location because I didn't have that part of the, 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 of the investigation. But I don't think we ever verified what he was doing up in Maine the night before. And it always strikes me as odd that, geez, you know, you put this whole big plot together, you're going to send off all these planes, crash them into buildings, you've got this whole thing scheduled, but there's something more important that you've got to do up in Maine and then make it back the next morning on a puddle jumper in time to join in on the attack. So we, ne we never did learn exactly what went up in Maine or who he went to see. Um, this is money that was sent back, uh, I believe it's to Saudi Arabia, and we found this torn up in, in one of the cars. And this is the guy that, I'm sorry, went back to uh, in, in Dubai. Um, to totally different mindset with these people. This is a, a, an American citizen that was caught in a bombing attack in, in Israel. The body came back home here, and we had to ask the parents, because totally grieving at the time, can we perform an autopsy on her, and can we remove the metal, metal objects that may have killed her from the bomb? They may lead us to uh, prevent further attacks. They may lead us to the terrorists. And this piece of metal, it entered her throat from the right side, crossed over to the left, hit the left shoulder where it comes together in the bone there, and then bounced back in her back. 
in the beginning of this, uh, when I was in, in the uh, morgue's office, medical examiner's office in Boston, we thought there were two pieces of metal that, that had killed her. But uh, I always remember looking at it, I think she was only 23 or something like that, and it's like she just had to go to college uh, for whatever reason in, in Israel. And, and of course, that's at a time when it's always under attack and people are doing these bombings in these cafes. And I kept thinking, jeez, oh, this is such a waste. That object there, it turns out it's, it's a nut that goes on a very large screw. And that's all it is, but that's what it took uh, to kill her in the attack. This is, uh, yeah, the tax collector for uh, the city of Providence. This is Anthony Anarino. And uh, it's pretty interesting because what he doesn't know is that um, he's, shake, he's shaking down people. If, if you live in the city of Providence and you want your property taxes to be lowered, you go see Anthony and for money in an envelope, Anthony will lower your property taxes. Um, and and we, know, we know that happened because a person came forward, was all upset about the whole thing, couldn't make it happen the right way or whatever, so we wired him up, we put a camera and listening device in a briefcase. So he would go in to visit Mr. Anarino, set the briefcase down, and record the, the entire transaction that was taking place. That was one part of Operation Plunderdome. And the interesting thing here is that, you know, we even pick up, it's recordings, but it's not from Mayor Cianci, but they allege, the cohorts, because there's a whole lot of them, that Mayor Cianci tootles them on how to do things the right way. And in his case, he never takes anything directly. The money goes to his right-hand man, which was uh, uh, Frank Carrenti, his advisor there. Um, but the interesting thing here, when I interviewed him, we had raided the, uh, the city hall in, in, of uh, Providence. And it was actually just right across the street from the office of the FBI. You could look out our window and look into their windows. That's how close we were. So my job was to confront him and bring him back to the office, interview him there, and that sort of thing. And, and, and I got to thinking, by this time, I'm a, I'm a senior agent, so it really, I should listen to everything I'm told, but I don't. But he's Mr. Friendly, and, and bad guys are interesting. You always wonder, like, you know, why do they talk to you? Um, usually it's, it's, it's a fishing expedition. They want to find out what you know. So you're, you're kind of playing that, that whole game of give them a little, don't give them too much. You've got to draw them out because you've got to get them talking. Or they talk to you because they just want to show you how much smarter they are than you. They want to show the FBI that they're in control. You're not. And that was him. He wanted to show me that he was in control. So the interview lasts for three hours. And thank God we didn't have cell phones in those days, so they couldn't pester me. But they're panicking across the street. Because as we're searching the offices of, of City Hall, I'm in his office. Uh, and as I'm talking to him, every time he tells me a lie, I just tell him, well, you're aware, Mr. Anarino, that although I'm in here you know, asking you questions about bribes and things of that nature, that lying to a special agent of the FBI, that's a separate crime in itself, punishable up to, up to five years. Oh, that's okay, Jim Rose. I just want to do the best I can. I'm, I'm willing to help the FBI out, you know, anything I can do and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, well, he's willing to talk. Why should I bring him over to the office, be surrounded by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office and have him clam up and go for his rights? He's talking. Let's keep going. So for three hours I interviewed him. I've never interviewed anybody for three hours. He had 20 pages of notes. And then uh, when I finally got over there and, and showed them what had transpired, they were all like, this is great stuff. We got him. And um, in fact, when he was being sentenced in trial, I remember he jumped up and, and tried to make accusations about me lying and uh, 
in our, our document. Our document is called an FD302. That's kind of, um, it's not a, a verbatim recording of what transpires in an interview, but that's our document. It's we live and die by. <coughs> but, uh, yeah. this is, uh, this is a, a different city in Rhode Island, and it's election time. The man in the car, um, he's my informant. He does, he does work for me, he doesn't work for me, but he, he doesn't get paid anything. But he does this because he's trying to help us fight corruption. The woman standing there, she's a city clerk for one of the major cities in Rhode Island. And she has told him, in fact, yeah, he's running for mayor. She has told him that she has a secret list of voters that she can sell him, that will help him swing the election if he pays her $5,000. So I'm like, this is great, let's get it recorded. If the recording comes out good, everything works, then let's see if we can get the money and take her down. So the recording works, it's all good. And then mysteriously again, the U.S. Attorney's Office decides, eh, we, eh, you know, we just don't want to prosecute it. I'm like, what do you mean you don't want to prosecute it? She's selling her, her position of trust. She's selling her office. That's public corruption. She's telling him she knows how she can turn the election. And you're telling me, after we've got it on tape and I'm ready to pay the money, that you won't go forward and prosecute it. Nope. So when that happens, there's not much you can do as an FBI agent. Department of Justice makes the decision, and that's how it is. If the opportunity would have presented itself, uh, sometimes what I would do in cases like that, I would take them to, uh, for local prosecution, try to get the state or the locals to prosecute it. But in this case here, they told me adamantly I was not allowed to try to take this and chop it out to the locals to try to get her uh, convicted on that. Well, you drive on. This is uh, the plane that crashed in, in Far Rockaway, New York. And uh, <clears throat> unbeknownst to myself, I violated the, uh, the SAC's orders. Again, I get the call. You know, we think it's a terrorist attack. It's about a month after 9-11. So they call, they said, can you get a team? I said, sure, what do you need? An eight-man team. I said, yep, we're on our way. I forgot to tell the special agent in charge of the division, so off I go with my team. And uh, we get out there, and I'm figuring, hey, this ain't going to be so bad. You know, I served 10 years in New York City. I, I know Brooklyn. We'll be out there searching, you know, out there in the open. It's like, nope. I get there, and, and the agent running the show says, I'm really desperate. I need a team to, to, to go to the morgue. I need somebody in there. I'm like, hey, needs of the bureau. Whatever it takes, we'll get it done. Just tell me what you want. Can you go to the morgue and stay there for the next few weeks? You got it, whatever you need. So this is where I learned that, that the human body could melt. Um, I just, it was the most terrible experience of my life and my team. I, I had team members go down, they, they, they couldn't take it. I couldn't take it myself, but you can't show that type of thing how much it affects you. But most of these victims, they're charged beyond recognition. You can't tell whether they're male, female, black, white, you can't recognize anything about them. Um, and the other thing that we have to do is when we're in the morgue, the cadaver is, is of course, on, on the gurney laying there. Well, until, again, NTSB declares it a, uh, a non-terrorism event, the Bureau takes precedence, we run the investigation, we approach it just like it's a terrorism event. So what we're going to do here, because these bodies have been so mutilated, we're going to go inside each and every body to see if there's any wires, any residue of an, an IED, an improvised explosive device. So we're going to be reaching inside and going through all that sort of stuff. And I've never been to an autopsy until 
those weeks. But hard lesson learned. Unfortunately, what we had to do, and in this case, for whatever reason, uh, many of the faces, um, the heads, the heads were cut in half, and, and sometimes they'd just be from the teeth down. But you had to grab the cadaver, pull it in and hug it, bring it up to your face, and hold it that way so the agent on the other side of the table could search there for any residue and things of that nature. Then you put, your, then you put it down, and he picks it up, and you search on that side of it. So for about three weeks, we were doing that every day. Um, but that's what we do in the Bureau. This is a... Uh, uh, I've had... Be careful here. <laughs> I've had uh, at least two subjects kill themselves. And in this case, uh, one subject did. Oh, that's right. I, I didn't bring it up. But um, what this is, is it's, anti, it, it's, it's bribery. It's shaking down contractors. And it's an antitrust violation. Title 18 United States Code, I think it's 666, the Sherman Antitrust Act, which goes all the way back to the days of Grant and Sherman and all those sort of guys. But if there is a, a bid put out on anything and you try to overcome the bid process, then that's a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. This plane belongs to a prince in Saudi Arabia, and they're trying to finish it up and get it built. So there are different subcontractors that, that put together different parts of the plane. Like, apparently it's really fancy inside. I mean, it's got some kind of incredible sound system, bed system. It's, it's nothing like a, a normal piece of aircraft. And um, all the subcontractors are paying money to the guy who's running this, and I think he was running it for, for Boeing or Raytheon at that time. I forget. But um, what ends up happening is I kind of identify who the subcontractors are, and there's two that we need to interview. One's going to be down in Miami. One's going to be over in Staten Island. I want to interview them simultaneously at the same time so that they can't collude and make up a story and get together. And it's the day before Christmas, so I've sent the lead down to Miami and told them, at this exact time, you've got to be on that guy, because at that exact time in Staten Island, I'm going to be on them, because I don't want them calling. So sure enough, he does his thing, I do my thing. And, and the woman and her husband that paid the, the bribes, she's fighting me left and right, left and right, and finally her husband gives it up, and he says, he wouldn't be here if he didn't know. He said, we might as well just tell him. So I said, I said, you might as well, because I've already checked your bank accounts, and I see you deposited the cash in your bank accounts. I've been looking at this for a year. This is how much money you've made. So not only do you have violations of the Sherman Antitrust Act, you have income tax evasion problems. So again, if I don't get you in column A, I get you in column B. Well, at the same time, the agent in Miami does his job. He takes the guy out with lights and sirens on the road, gets him to pull over, shows him the creds, and gives him his thing. The guy says, I'm willing to talk, but I can't talk right now. I guarantee I'll talk tomorrow. So the agent lets him go. So of course, I'm bouncing off the wall. like. All right, back to work the next day, no problem. Phone rings. It's like, I speak with Agent William Rose. Yes, this is Agent Rose. How may I help you? He says, this is so-and-so. I'm an attorney for the CIA. Yeah, sure you are. So, and I'm in, I'm in a squad bay with 50 other agents, all jokesters and pranksters. So I'm looking out going, who's on the phone? Let's see. CIA, huh? Yeah, how can I help you? I'd like to get together with you. Sure, any time. Uh, when do you want to see me? I'm thinking, he's, you know, I'm thinking it's one of them. He's going, uh, would Monday morning at 7 o'clock be okay? He said, who are you? 
No, I'm really am. I'm so-and-so from the CIA. Sure, okay, I'll be here at 7 o'clock Monday morning. Sure enough, 7 o'clock Monday morning, these two people come in, they've got their creds, CIA, like my creds, and I'm like, it's the real thing. Well, apparently, they had an investigation going on this plane, and what I did is I stumbled across a CIA operation. It's like, well, you didn't tell me. What can I tell you? Yeah. And it turned out they were concerned about uh, guns and stuff being smuggled on this jet back to Saudi Arabia and all that sort of stuff there. So we ended up having a big fight with the CIA, what we're going to do, who's going to do this and that. And it's like, ah, oh, you know. And uh, in the end, we agreed. Listen, I'm not going to touch the Egyptian guy, okay? That's yours. We'll leave him alone. Do you think it's okay if I continue on after the guy in Texas? Because there's a fellow in Texas. So they said, well, okay, we can do that. And I thought, no, that's not smart. You should have me close the entire case down. Well, this cost me my close relationship I had with a female IRS agent. She, we had worked, we were attached together at the hip for almost 10 years. And she was really upset when I offered to close the investigation for the CIA. Never talked to me again, never worked with me again after that. And she was a, an extremely uh, very good agent. In fact, IRS CID, not the ones that you're normally familiar with, they are very good agents. They're very good investigators. Uh, proficient, you always want them on your team. And if you know they're after you, give it up as fast as you can. That's all I would say. <laughs> but at any rate, so, um, so shortly after, after, after this whole thing with the CIA, I get in a plane with my IRS agent. We go down to um, Jewett, Texas, which is just north of Austin, Texas, some kind of a small city. I mean, we fly down there, we rent a car. About 9 o'clock in the morning, we're at their home, banging on the doors. And, of course, I'm standing like Special Agent Rose, Boston Office of the FBI. I need to speak to someone. Yes, Gary, is he home? Oh, he comes to the door, and he's looking out. He's, he's looking left, and he's looking right. And I'm, and I'm like, what are you looking for? Oh, I, I, I expected to see a bunch of agents in suits with, with Ray-Bans and, 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 and Black Ford Crown Vicks and, and, and M-16s. He said, no, it's, it's just me and, and an IRS agent and I have this small weapon. If you'd like me to pull the weapon and make your day, I could do that. But I just want to talk to you. Am I under arrest? I said, no, not yet. I said, you know, sit down. We'll put this thing together. You know, so we go in, we talk, and you know, he more or less gives me a confession. It doesn't matter anyways. I've got the proof. So it's like, okay. So I explained to him. He, he's a first-time offender. He's frightened to death, I can tell. So I'm trying to calm him down. I don't want anybody to kill themselves because I don't get any credit if a bad guy kills himself. It's like you've wasted the whole investigation because now the FBI can't claim stats when they go to Congress to get funding. So, yeah. The important things, right? So I think I've got him calm down. Look, this is how this works. My attorney is going to contact your attorney. You guys are going to make arrangements to come up, come up to Boston or New York City at that time, and you're going to enter a plea of guilty. Then you go back home. And about six months later, you'll come back up, go before a judge, and he'll probably give you probation and tell you to pay back 20% of what, you, of what you got. That's that simple. Chances of you going to jail are probably minuscule. So probably four months later, I'm, I'm at a search in North Attleboro. I get a phone call. We finally have, the Bureau finally gives us cell phones. That was something. And it's a southern voice because this is a deputy so-and-so from Jewett, Texas. Can I speak to our agent William Rose? Yes, this is Agent Rose. How can I help you? Y'all had a case on a Gary Arnold? No, no, I didn't have a case. I, I have a case. 
said, Agent, no, you, you had a case. Smoney stepped outside in the backyard and blew his, blew his brains out with a pistol. Uh, bouncing off the wall, screaming and yelling out the age of the agent, stopping it. It's like, and I'm thinking, all oh, that work for nothing. Uh, and he probably would have got probation. Probably would have never seen the inside. But that's how terrified people can get. But oh, there's his note to his wife. I hope you're happy now. Your wish just came true, Gary. Grease. Hmm. This is the Sons of Silence motorcycle gang. When I went to Denver, uh, they must have had about 28 color-wearing motorcycle gangs in the Denver metropolitan area. And um, supervisor walked up to me one day, and he said, what do you know about motorcycle gangs? I said, geez, Kenny, I'm from New England. I've never seen a motorcycle gang. He said, well, you're going to become the motorcycle gang expert, and these are your guys, your targets. I'm like, huh. So luckily I hooked up with Denver PD, two good detectives, and they educated me in the ways of motorcycle gangs, the jargon, the colors. Those are called colors or rags, and they're women, and they're called wives or girlfriends, they're called old ladies, and motorcycles are called bikes. And they got a whole thing. But before this thing was over, they, they put out a, a contract on me for $25,000 dead. I was very, very upset because I firmly believe I was worth at least 150000 So I was actually going to go pay them a visit and say, I demand you raise the money on the contract. But then I realized I had conducted a search on their place of business. I took all their money, forfeited it. I closed down their shop. I took everything they owned, everything they ever will own. So they had no more money. I really got the 25000 was beyond me. But so, yeah, I didn't go back and demand, hey, I'm worth more than that. But that there on, on the top left, that's uh, Pork. That's his street name. They all have these names. This is Hemorrhoid. <laughs> this is Knuckles. Uh, and that's us taking Pork out of uh, his shop. And that's me in the background when I had black hair and a black mustache. The guy just told me that they went down to the local police and said that they could give up a dirty agent. They tried to put a black mark on your name. Oh, uh, me? Uh, that was kind of funny. Bad guys always do that. This is a, a child kidnapping, and, and this will be the interesting one because I'll, I'll let you participate a bit. But this is uh, Denver, Colorado. This little baby was kidnapped probably, uh, I think, with, within hours of birth or whatever. So they did a, an artist com two artist composites, I think one by the FBI, one by Denver PD. So the big argument that occurs in the office before everybody runs out is like, well, which one are we going to use? Is it this one or is it this one? This is the, lady, the actual lady. So let me ask you, show of hands, do you think she looks like that? Yeah. Okay, that's all right. Or do you think she looks like that? Or do you think she doesn't look like either of them? I don't know. It's tough. Yeah, exactly. I guess that's what it is. But our job, after they chose the, the composite, was okay. Each agent in the Denver office is going to be assigned six women to go out and interview. These women in the past year have lost a baby either at birth or shortly after birth. Your job is to get inside that house to find out if there's a newborn baby in there and then to get back with us. So it's like, and they don't tell you what to say. They don't tell you what to do. You find a way to get in the house. So that goes back to where I tell you you have to be a good speaker and a good actor. And I'm not a good speaker at all. I'm, I'm, I'm as shy as can be. I seldom talk. My wife will tell you. She's a talker. I'm not. Anybody who went to school with me here in Easton will tell you. Bill who? I never heard from him. But at any rate, so finally I'm in my third interview, and, and I'm, I've got inside, I'm, I'm sitting down with the woman. She's got the TV set on, thank God. And it flashes across the news. 
Maybe so-and-so has, has been recovered by agents of the FBI and so-and-so is under arrest. So I terminate the interview quickly and said, well, I, I got to go. And, but my whole, my whole thing with her was, I, I think what I, what I had come up with was, do you have any ideas what type of woman would take a baby like that and this type of thing? And I was trying to play that thing, and I'm thinking, she's... I'm supposed to be stupid or whatever, and she's going to tell me, well, I just recently lost a baby and this and that. I'm like, yeah, I know, and I'm, I'm not trying to bring up these bad memories for you, but it's the job. It's what you do. This is a Korean newspaper in New York City, and these are special agents of the FBI. These are two Korean agents, and this is a female agent, and this is Tina Choi, really, Pei Sun Duk from Korea, an illegal citizen who's been here for 25 years as Tina Choi, and she's the right-hand man for dear, yeah, Mayor Dinkins in the New York City Mayor's office. And she's got a scheme going. What this is, is um, she has two fake schools, which are buildings, that we're paying for with, uh, I think it's Department of Labor money. And she's supposed to be giving classes to uh, Koreans who don't speak English. The classes, they're going to learn to speak English as a second language. And I exactly forget how we get on to this whole thing. But we go there. I can't get inside the building, so we're executing a search warrant. And I've got, got the Korean agents with me in case there are documents in Korean. And this is a, an employee from the New York City Office of Investigations. I always worked quite a few of my cases there with them. They're, they're very proficient. And I uh, had to call an NYPD to help us open the door. And that's where I learned a vital lesson. From that point on, I always carried a crowbar in the trunk of my blue car. Young cop gets out. He says, what do you need? Says, I need to get in that building. He says, damaged or not damaged? I said, if you could do it undamaged, it's not a problem. Turn for his car, gets out the crowbar, pops the door. He goes, anything else? I said, stay with me. I need to go up inside in case there's any other doors like this. I can sure use you. He says, hey, no problem. Getting to work with the FBI? That's great. So what it turned out to being was the scheme was every person was supposed to get a check four checks a month from the Department of Labor to learn to speak English as a second language. Well, Tina Choi, Pei Sun Duk, um, she put together this whole scheme with her roommate, Miyok Lee. Now, Miyok Lee was a professor at Columbia University. And what they would do is, is sign up people, allegedly for the classes. They knew there were going to be no classes. But what they would tell them is, we'll give you two checks a month so we can use your name and your social security number, and then we can get these checks. So as I'm doing this investigation, of course, everybody I'm, I'm encountering speaks Korean. But luckily, this agent here, um, his parents were from Korea, and he spoke perfect Korean, so I used him every place I went. We went to a church um, someplace in, in uh, uptown uh, New York City, and so I'm, in, 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 I'm asking him questions, and I'm taking copious notes, because that's what we do in the FBI not like all that other stuff you've heard of, of recent. Um, only agents take notes, by the way. Directors don't. We won't go down there. But at any rate, so I'm taking copious notes. And in the midst of it, some old guy jumps up, and he's screaming at me. He's pointing his finger at me. And I'm going, what? what's his problem? He said, well, he said, because of you, they're going to get no checks. I said, well, you tell him in Korean, he's supposed to get four checks, not two checks. No checky, checky, cashy, cat. This is how they talk, checky, checky, cashy, cashy. I'd, I'd come home, and that's how I'd be talking, checky, checky, cashy, cashy. At any rate, but to show you how the, the system of justice works. So she's ripped us off, U.S. taxpayers, about $400,000. And 
And when it gets time for sentencing, she just mysteriously happens to be diagnosed with cancer. So the old federal judge, feeling empathy and sorrow for her, gives her probation. I don't flip out in the courtroom. I go out in the hallway and flip out. <laughs> God, jeez. As you can see, I'm not really a, a fan of federal judges. They, they tend to be the good people, the good human beings, but they're soft on, on prosecuting things. This is a, a sex change issue, and I, and I reread this caption. It was great. Whoever wrote it got it totally wrong. But um, I get a call from the local sheriff's department in Denver, and it's a murder for hire case. So he says, this is a job for the FBI, not for us. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, because the murder for hire is over in California. He said, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'll come out, see what's up. So we're sitting there talking. He's giving me an explanation. And he says, um, yeah, David Lamb is the guy. He's, he was going to be the murderer, but he's decided to come on our side and this and that. But he's on his way here right now. So I'm thinking, okay, David Lamb. I, I got it. Okay, so in he comes. And in walks this guy. <laughs> any rate, he had the longest blonde hair you've ever seen, most beautiful hair I've ever seen in my life. May God forgive me. And he had the tightest pants on, and he had all that eye makeup stuff, rouge and mascara. I mean, I, I don't know what that stuff is. And fingernails. And, and he comes in and he goes, Hi, I'm Jan. And of course, my mind just goes blank. I'm thinking, I thought he was David. Oh, my God. So, oh, oh, so any rate, so we're riding back. I'm taking him back to Denver because we're out in Arapahoe County. Now, on the west, it's always great. It's Kiowa County, Arapahoe County. It's like, that's why I love Weston so much. But we're riding back, and so he says, I know what you want to ask me. I said, really? He says, yep. Well, are, are you, um, are you like me? <laughs> are you a guy? <laughs> you know, how am I going to say? I got I to gotta know. Because I'm going to do the 302, and I got to know if he's Jan or if he's David. He said, no, I'm still David. He said, the whole scheme about this was it was a murder for hire. This woman in California, she wanted her husband killed. Well, she had tried, and this is all true, she had tried three times before with guys out of Denver. First time they go out, their van breaks down in, in the Rocky Mountains, and they can't continue on. They have to go back. Second time they go out, they get pulled over by by the Colorado, Colorado Highway Patrol, and they get arrested for other crimes they've committed. She finds a, a different team. They go out. They actually get all the way to California. They get inside the house. They're inside there, and they've sent in a young 17-year-old kid, basically, to do the killing. He's standing right over the bed, knife up, and, and then he just he can't do it. So he scrambles out, and he leaves, and all that sort of stuff. And then she runs into David, also known as Jan. And then that's when Jan tells her about Kavari, they can poison him, do all this sort of stuff. So the way that I put the case together is I get Jan on the phone, get permission, of course, from the U.S. Attorney's Office in the court. We, we wire him up, we wire the phone up, we make phone calls to her and get her to confess to him over the phone or talk about the scheme where he's going to come out there to California and kill her husband. So the bad part is things usually in, in the federal system take four or five years to get to court. So now when we finally get to court, it's in Santa Rosa, California. I'm assigned to the New York office. I'm working up in Poughkeepsie, and I get a, what we call an airtel that says, get ASAP to Santa Rosa, California, testify in this trial. And all the time I'm thinking like, oh, when I get on the stand, you see David or Jan. I know they're going to play that trick. And was he David or Jan when I was, when I was talking to him? Luckily, I didn't have to take the stand. They, they accepted my notes and all that sort of stuff. But we did get her convicted. So again, 
Hell hath no wrath like a woman's fury. This is, um, this is again, when I'm not too bright. And these are railroad tracks in, um, in Brooklyn, New York. And yes, I'm laying in between the railroad tracks. Trains could come. But I, mu- I have to get the photograph of this truck being loaded, loaded up with C&D, construction and debris material. Because what's happening is they have a scheme going on at the Fresh Kills landfill. You may have heard about the Fresh Kills landfill after the attacks of 9-11. That's where they brought everything for that. Well, prior to that, it's like any other landfill. You have to have clean cover, and that's what that stuff is, clean cover to hide the rubbish for the day and all that sort of stuff. You get, you get paid um, to bring in the clean cover. The city pays you X amount of dollars for that. But if you want to bring in C&D, you have to pay the city. So they have 15 inspectors at the Fresh Kills landfill, employees of, the, of New York City, working with about seven zero truck drivers to bring in C&D under the guise of, um, of clean fill. So we end up taking that, that thing down. And what I'm, I'm hiding in a parking lot here, photographing this guy. What he's done is he's loaded up here. I got that photograph. Followed him here, jumped out, hiding behind cars. And he's waiting. He's going to get a receipt from this guy who's participating in the scheme that shows that this rubbish is clean fill. It's kind of complicated cases we, we work. Um, and again, that's him heading for the landfill, and that's uh, another truck that's pulled up, and I'm still not smart enough to get it, get out from under the, uh, the railroad stuff there. Um, we always do paper. So this is an information. It's a charging document. And like I say, we do an awful lot of writing in the Bureau. Uh, and that's it for that. This guy here, and I'm almost done. Uh, this fellow here threatened to kill... Um, he wanted to kill a police officer, so he was hoping that if anybody ever came at him, he could kill him. They decided we're going to do a search here at him in Roxbury, and I'm new to the division. By that time, I'm a senior agent, and so they, they put me in charge of the whole search, which is like, wow, lucky me. And I'm the first guy coming through the door, so I'm thinking, yep, he looks scary. And as things will go, knock on the door, FBI, open the door. We have a warrant for your arrest, open it now, blah, blah, and we have to wait 30 seconds before we can knock the door down. So no problem, wait 30 seconds. I've got some brand new agents with me. They're hard to charge. They've got the battering ram. They're hoping he doesn't open the door. Sure enough, he doesn't open the door. So I tell them, okay, hit it. They hit the door. It breaks like a Dutch door, and the top part goes flying, hits the wall, breaks the window, comes back, smacks me in the face. Oh. And, and in, in that time, there are people running through this whole place. There's dogs running. He's, he's got uh, bull mastiffs and all kinds of things. And there's, there's naked women. There's, it's, and I'm like, oh, oh. And it's like, and I got a front team trying to break through the front door. And it's like, well, what do you do? All right, you do what any normal agent would do. They've piled up bags of rubbish at the back door, so you can't even walk through. So I dive over, roll on the floor. There's needles all over the place because this is a drug den and a prostitution den. Get my gun out, and I'm yelling, FBI, nobody move, everybody down, everybody down. And, and, and I'm running through the house and, and get to the front door, knock that bar off the door, get the front team in, and then we get everything kind of under control. So brand new agent was outside looking in, he, and he does a great job. And he's saying, you don't have everybody, you don't have everybody. So what do you mean? I've, I've got these three women, and they say there was no one else here. And it's like, no, there was a guy in a red shirt. Well, we've, we've searched every room. But this place here had to be the filthiest place I've ever been in in my life. 
And every room had clothes stacked up about as high as my chest. I'd never seen anything like it. So I don't know how they walked around, but there were beds in there, and, and there were dogs, and, and there was feces all over the floor. I mean, they didn't clean anything. And it wasn't even a clean rag to wipe anything off with in the house. So it's like, okay, well, all right, let's get everything under control. I got the three women identified. There's one we're going to hold because there's a warrant for her arrest. We're going to let the other two go, and we'll do what we normally do, a meticulous search room by room, looking for evidence. So we start the search, and I've got an agent down in the front room. And all of a sudden, I hear him yelling, get up, get up, get up, or I'll, I'll blow your head off where you're at. Sure enough, it's this guy. He had run all the way down the hallway as I'm rolling on the floor, so I'd never seen him, and he dove in and hid under all those clothes for all that time. And it must have been about 40 minutes before we knew he was there. So things can go wrong. That's how it is. And this is just the... I'm Irish, so I, so I think I can say this. This is the typical Ahmed car robber from Charlestown. They're all Irish, and they're all me. <laughs> well, I never worked that case, though. And that's it, pretty much, except for one last slide. I'd just like to see if I can get to that. <coughs> Let's see, escape. Okay, we'll get there. Bear with me. Okay, there's one last slide in here. Oh, Louisiana shortcut. Northern Colorado. Dutchess shortcut, shortcut. Ooh. Huh. Borrowville. What did I call that one? Eh, maybe not. Maybe I didn't take the photograph. But there was a photograph I was going to show you because one of the people in it had killed himself as a result of my investigations. But all this other stuff is, is other things that I do. So, any questions about the FBI? That's the real FBI. That's how we get the mission done. It's not always like TV. What are the requirements now for uh, applicants? Well, uh, you have to have a, a clean criminal history. And um, what you need, at, at minimum, is a four-year degree with three years of professional experience. But there are five entry ways into the Bureau. The first, of course, is to have a, be a CPA or have an accounting degree and three years professional experience there. The second is to be an attorney with experience there. Um, the third is to be um, in the computer world or the engineering world and to have a degree in that. Um, maybe there's only four categories. No, but the fourth is the language category. You need to be able to speak a language that the Bureau needs. So in my day, the language was Chinese because we, we were always after uh, China and the Soviet Union, the evil empire. So if you spoke those languages, um, you were pretty much the end. And then the fifth category, which is where I come into play, and I call that the mutt category. <laughs> it's a Bachelor of Science degree in anything, and then three years professional experience. My professional experience would have been being an, an officer in, in the Army, that type of thing. Um, but you have to undergo an extensive background investigation, and some people don't take it seriously. We will go every place you've ever lived, every place you've ever gone to school, every place you've ever worked. And if you think that you can lie to us and hide it, I got some news for you. You'd just be amazed. So you go through that, that type of a process. Yeah.